This is the Ivy League Hoops Hour, where we cover all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. We are your hub, your go-to, your day one, but not really, though. I'm your co-host, Coach Sidney Johnson, former head coach of the Princeton Tigers from 2007 to 2011 and former three-time captain of the Tigers in 95 96 and 97. I am faithfully joined by my co-host, the outstanding Princeton alum and former Princeton graduate assistant coach, none other than Lawrence, my guy L. Boogie Schuler. Lawrence, how you making out? I'm feeling great. I feel like a champion, coach. How about you? You ought to, my man, as we are once again bringing the Ivy League Hoops Hour to our friends, fans, faithful listeners, all of the above as you join us as we chop up all things going on with men's basketball in the ancient eight, the student athletes, the coaches, the trends, the ups and downs, the teams, all of that good stuff. Please join the conversation. Let us know where we stand. John Solomon, our chief in-game correspondent, has been an outstanding contributor. We had William McCormick from the Yale Daily News last week. May have him back for sure. And we're putting out an open call to all of you who join us each and every week. If you're particularly close to one of the programs, please jump in on this conversation. Email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. Not only will we take in your questions, your suggestions, comments on what we're talking about on the show, but we may even invite you to join us. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Without further ado, on this week's version of the Ivy League Hoops Hour, my eyes don't lie to me. We have John Solomon and Lawrence Schuler, um, and yours truly, Coach Sidney Johnson. And I'm posing this to the guys right off the cuff. If you have a one-bid league like the Ivy League historically, I think that the regular season champ, if that team is different than your conference tournament champ, there should be a one-game playoff to decide the automatic qualifying berth for the NCAA tournament. What do you guys think? When do you play it? Uh, Maybe the day after um, the conference tournament. So we go to Harvard. We play uh, 1-4, 2-3 on Thursday. Those winners play on Friday. And if that winner is different than the regular season champ, then you play that game on Saturday, and there's your AQ berth. So in this scenario, the regular season Ivy champ has to lose twice to not make the NCAA tournament. You got it. It's interesting. You, you threw this at us right off the bat. I think you're onto something there. I, I don't know if it needs tweaking, but I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea. I'm actually surprised that a non-Ivy conference hasn't dropped their conference tournament to embrace the uniqueness of the conference schedule without a conference tournament but i would imagine for any conference that has considered that the lure of march television has been too difficult to ignore Uh, that's interesting to me can you walk me through that why would they if not for television okay because you're spot on that that is the reason if not for the pressures of you know needing to be on tv or wanting to be on tv whatever it is why would a conference choose to do that? 
to send their strongest conference representative to the NCAA tournament. And also, I think, I mean, look how much mileage might be the wrong word, but look how much mileage the Ivy League got out of being the only conference that didn't have a conference tournament. But a team clinched the league a weekend early and was the first team to secure an NCAA tournament bid. That always got front page status on ESPN just because of the uniqueness before conference tournament week. I guess that's my thought process is there's a, a void there where a smaller conference with excellent marketing skills could figure out a way to show the weight that every conference game has instead of it all just being to figure out who's going to be seated where. I couldn't agree with you more. So why did we go to a conference tournament? Because all those things were in place prior to, what is it, four years ago? I mean, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I know there was a nice little buzz and a little punch in the arm uh, the first one or two times. But I, I just, and I'm, I'm all in for the Ivy League, folks. But I don't, I'm still not embracing Ivy Madness. I'm just not. Because everything you said, John, we already had, we had all that, you know, as a student athlete, you know, 90s and, and later and even earlier, it's like the Ivy League champion was always mentioned during championship week, you know, um, and that was obviously still kind of coming together as ESPN was growing and growing as it attached itself to college basketball. But, you know, it would be like, all right, and so Team A joins the Ivy League champion as you know, the next automatic qualifier, like the Ivy League champion was always mentioned, especially in those first few days of, of championship week, because we already had the AQ decided. When we start to have instances where we're sending less than our best, we're going to regret that because we're going to regret those great opening round games where we're either making it a game and we're holding the nation in the palm of our hands as they're cheering for the underdog or uh, Yale, I'm looking at you, Harvard, I'm looking at you, Cornell, I'm looking at you, Princeton, I'm looking at you. We're actually winning one of those games, if not two. I don't get it. I don't think the risk reward long-term is going to be on the side of Ivy Madness. If there's one way to balance the scale, it would be, all right, we still want to send our best. So if for some way, some reason, you can't figure it out in the conference tournament, then we're going to give you another crack. And then, hey, if you can't do it then, then it is what it is. And, and the best team did win. And they're going through. Well, let's get to my eyes don't lie to me. As we look at the weekly review of all things men's basketball in the ancient eight, in the week that was. And we have John Solomon here to join us as always as we continue to bat around all of these ideas, trends, teams, coaches, players to see who's all going to end up in Ivy Madness and track the games as we go. And John is always with us to weigh in on Princeton basketball in particular as he's going to the games in person. And I say always. Glad that he's joined us the last four or five weeks or so. And John, what can you tell us about that big game, Princeton, visiting the Cornell Big Red? Yeah, a traditional Friday, Saturday 
Ivy Road weekend. My dad and I made it back on the road to snowy Ithaca on Friday for a well-earned 88-83 home victory by the Big Red. However, Mm. Princeton's head coach didn't make the same trip due to COVID protocols, and neither did interior defense for either team. In the first half, played at a hectic pace with almost all the scoring done inside the arc. I jotted two notes at the top of my pad before tip-off. Cornell undefeated at home and Big Red averaging 92-plus points per game there. Scoring wasn't a surprise given how well both squads can shoot, but where almost all the points came from was a total layup a five buckets on five possessions to start the night for the Tigers. Comparing first half shooting inside the arc versus outside the arc, Princeton was three for 16 from deep, but 13 for 18 inside. Two of the Tigers' three trays included the second of the season for Tosan Evwoman, which touched rim, glass, rim, and a corner jumper by reserve Max Johns nearly nine minutes in. The first make from distance for either team. Cornell, by comparison, two for 13 outside, one of which was banked in while fouled, 15 for 23 inside. That bank shot from Dean Knoll made it 46-40 Big Red at halftime. When play resumed, Kobe Dixon found Sarju Patel back door, and Keller Boothby got his first points of the night for a 10-point Cornell advantage. Jalen Llewellyn's free throw turnaround jumper were his first points for Princeton. Trailing by seven with over 16 minutes to go, the Tigers went to the defense that sparked their 18-point second-half comeback at Jadwin, the 1-3-1. This time, Brian Earl's squad well-prepared, having seen the same move once before, getting a Jordan Jones three on their first look versus the zone. Earl's counter located players in the bench corner for open looks, freed by a different left-side screen as the ball was passed. Thus, the Tigers didn't opt to ride the 1-3-1 to the final buzzer. Triples for Patel and Boothby versus 1-3-1 had Cornell up 67-59. When Tosan Ebwoman left the floor, Princeton returned to their man defense, down five with 3.30 left. The Tigers ran off the game's next seven points. Tosan converted two free throws, fouled by Dixon when help came to the post. I should note Tosan was an improved six for nine from the line for the game. Noel could not finish over Tosan and it looked like Llewellyn had missed from the wing before a whistle followed on Dixon. Three free throws nodded the score at 81. To go back to a topic from early in the run of your podcast, Cornell appeared to me like they were taking too long to get into their stuff offensively, trying to hold a lead in the final minutes. The Tigers' Matt Alaco retrieved the ball from Chris Mannon and another pull-up Llewellyn jumper from the free-throw line had Princeton back in front for the first time since 6.48 remained in the first half. Could Princeton rip another game away from Cornell? Well, on a loose ball following a man and miss, Patel and Drew Freiberg tried to rip the ball away from each other. Possession popped to Noel, who found Mr. EFG Boothby for a huge three with just over two minutes left. 84-83 Cornell. Tosan inside, fed Llewellyn outside for a three that came up short. Cornell got possession, and with the shot clock running low, Ethan Wright was called for a slap helping on defense. This sent Mannon to the line, who made the front end of his one-and-one. Llewellyn's attempt to tie was blocked inside by Mannon, and a Llewellyn high arch three was off to the left. Knoll secured the weak side rebound, and Wright fouled out in the process. A pair at the line, double the lead, and one more null free throw. Finished the Tigers off. 
extra floor space was perfect for Wright, who slashed, cut, and drove for 26. Tosan nimble inside for 27. Manon accompanied a career-high 22 with seven boards, five assists, and three steals. So you got these great evenings from Tosan and Wright, but at one point, fellow starters Llewellyn and Ryan Langborg were two for 12 combined shooting. And only Matt Alaco, Elijah Barnes, seven minutes, and Max Johns, three, saw time off the bench. By contrast, 11 Cornell players played at least 10 minutes on Friday night. Rare situation that I've seen from the Tigers where they had a couple of the stars playing well and not many others. You know, they've usually been very balanced. They've obviously had standout performances, but I don't know. Just in the games that I've seen that it's just been one or two Tigers on and and almost everybody off. That's one reflection I have. And the second is officiating is is so interesting and odd to me. Uh, Llewellyn definitely got fouled on that three, and it's so hard to make all three free throws. Sometimes you just don't see guys doing that. And he Llewellyn goes to the line and knocks all three down. He got hit equally as much on that corner three, John. And prior to that, he got mauled driving to the basket. Now, I don't have a, a dog in the race, okay? Um, Brian Earl's a dear friend. Mitch Henderson, dear friend. But I just, the, the officiating, it just so, it seemed like they swallowed their whistle the last minute. But then prior to that, uh, they're making calls left and right. Cornell was able to secure that rebound and, and get themselves in the line. Huge shot by Boothby, as you mentioned, Mr. EFG. And uh, I know Lawrence's favorite, Manon, had a really, really good game uh, for the Big Red. Impressive win for Cornell. Yeah, Manon has some nice size, and he can get free with that little behind-the-back dribble. I was impressed with what I saw on Friday. He plays like he's a veteran, you know, Um, sometimes a a little bit erratic or or inconsistent, and that's just – you know, being a young player, sophomore, first year in Division One basketball. But man, was he getting to his spots, just like you said, like it just power dribbles, getting to where he needs to, um, big target. And um, he looked brave out there. So well done, Cornell. Yale plays Dartmouth that evening, and they deserve the win because, frankly, I think they're the better team. And they played that way and showed that for much of the game, getting out to a nine-point lead at halftime and held Dartmouth at bay until the last media timeout of the game. And then the big green woke up, sparked a comeback that got it to a single possession game. But Yale's better, guys. And uh, they've held home court so far. They dangerously took their foot off the gas, I think, as they might have possibly been looking forward to Saturday night against Harvard. But they held on a three-point lead, and that's despite Dartmouth had Brendan Barry clear look to tie the game got an offensive rebound, kicked it out. Ryan Cornish actually pump faked defender fell down and he had an even more open look and couldn't knock it down. And Yale on Friday holds on to beat Dartmouth. As we look at Brown playing against Harvard on Friday night, absolutely heartbreaking for the Brown Bears. I read Mike Martin's comments after the game and I felt for him. This is a 66-50 loss to Harvard must win game at home. And Mike Martin said this, I know it's not lack of talent. It's not lack of effort. I can't pinpoint it. We're trying, end quote. Another quote that he had, the crowd wanted so badly for us to give them something to cheer about, end quote. Eight points at halftime, fellas. 
That's what a must-win game at home will do to you when you're scoring eight points at halftime. Obviously, a low point for Coach Martin and the Bears. Uh, and there was no comeback that was going to be powered by Tamaning Chow. His last three games, he's actually yielded less than nine points and five rebounds, which is not anything to sneeze at. But think about his previous seven games to that. Chow had posted 23 points and nine rebounds per outing. Harvard still without Chris Ledlam in the lineup, and they cruise to a big win. Wow. What do you guys say about that result? Were you as shocked as I was? I had to refresh my score app because I thought that the halftime score was wrong. I thought there was no way that the halftime score was 29 to 8 can take your confidence a bit and uh, we'll get to Saturday night. Brown was able to rally, but what a, what a disappointing result. Let's look at Columbia's weekend and that's going to roll into John being there to watch the Tigers in New York, but I'm going to pair up the weekend for the Columbia Lions Friday and Saturday night, a 15 point loss to Penn and an 18-point loss to Princeton, and and not a big surprise, to be honest. Columbia has struggled and and has continued to do so in Ivy play. The bigger surprise to me, guys, is Ike Nweke scored fewer points, 16 points combined in those two games versus Penn and Princeton, which is fewer points than he scored versus Princeton and Penn earlier in the year on the road. It does seem like the Lions are getting more production out of Shockley Okeke, Rubio De La Rosa, and Liam Murphy. But that's a lot of perimeter-oriented play, guys, that I'm seeing. And Nweke is just not as involved. He certainly was more productive uh, earlier in the season. And it just seems like the Lions can't quite get their balance going. Defensively, there's no one to battle for rebounds on a consistent basis, I would say, besides Columbia center Patrick Harding, who we're fortunate enough to have on the show. He's usually coming in at 10, 11, 12 rebounds per game. The winning formula continues to be elusive for this group. And John, you were there in person for that Princeton-Columbia game on Saturday. What did you see? Yeah, let me first add Columbia had six guys out on Friday with flu-like symptoms. So in addition to everything else, they were taking on the Quakers shorthanded. But at Columbia on Saturday night, just a totally different story. A comfortable 85-63 win for Princeton. The Lions captured the first eight points, but from there it was all Tigers. Even when Princeton fell behind on a series of lane floaters for Geronimo Rubio de la Rosa and a Patrick Harding jumper over Tosan Abuoman, the Tigers were getting nothing but open shots against man defense. Whether it was going inside to Tosan to kick out or perimeter passing, finding clean looks, Everything was routinely open. Princeton ran off 25 of the next 29 points to take a 13-point lead on a Drew Freiburg triple. And right now, Columbia isn't built to come back. They can't score enough. They can't get enough stops. Ethan Wright popping to his right in the final seconds was the Tigers' 10th three of the half, pushing up 16 at the break. After this weekend, is it finally time to talk about Ethan Wright as first-team All-Ivy? Question mark. Princeton took 42 threes, one short of the school record from 1998 in a game they lost to Western Illinois by one in overtime. That was not a happy drive for me back to Chicago from Des Moines, where that took place. Brian Earl played in that game, four for 12 from distance. 
but that game was in overtime. So unless I missed something along the way, Saturday, the Tigers took their most threes ever in a 40 minute game against a division one opponent. And honestly, they could have attempted more. The only real second half challenge was around when Tosan picked up his fourth personal Columbia ran off 10 straight pulled within 11 after a Cameron Shockley. OKK wing three, but Llewellyn drove twice to the tin. Tosan scored plus a foul. And the final was indicative of each side's overall performance, a real nice padded stat line for Tosan seven points, 11 rebounds, six assists. But again, Princeton didn't go to their bench until the final minute 42. This weekend, they've very much established an Iron 8 rotation. Are you looking for some college basketball content to add to your listen of the Ivy League Hoops Hour? Well, Lawrence and I have one for you. If you love college basketball, then listen to the Three Bid League podcast, the original Atlantic 10 men's basketball podcast, Tyler Cronin and Matt Graber. They'll guide you through college basketball's most chaotic league with a weekly collection of fantastic guests across the 14 teams and the hoops world. They dive into each week's biggest games, the most entertaining storylines, and the hottest takes in the A-10, along with the ever-important quest for at-large bids and bid thieves. Listen to the Three Bid League podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any podcast platform. I knew I should have picked Penn. I mean, every time Cornell tried to get close, the, the pin machine just kept grinding forward, right? And so at one point, like once Cornell went down 20, I couldn't watch anymore. Mm. And they brought it back. You know, they got the margin close again, but they couldn't close it out. Are we reading into it too much to say that they emotionally they just didn't have it to beat Princeton and then come back and be ready to take on Penn? Yeah, I, I would have thought that having Penn Princeton back to back at home, if they had won that game, they'd be basically a game behind, not first place, then second place. I mean, they could lock themselves in with two wins against two teams that are definitely going to be in the tournament. It makes me think of what John mentioned earlier as we discussed Ivy Madness or not, but respectfully, you don't have to be as good. It takes a lot to deal with the killer peas. No matter what year you're, you're talking about, Friday, Saturday, you got to deal with them back to back. That's real. And you got to be good to overcome that. Well, with Ivy Madness, you don't have to be quite as good. You can split those games. You know what I mean? And... um you know, I'm just, maybe I'm just being crotchety, but when conference play is all that determines it, what's the lot? You separate the boys from the men. Yeah. The one thing I would just add about the Cornell Penn game, I wasn't surprised that Penn won. I think I was surprised that they were able to get up so big. How are they playing so well, John? What are you seeing? I, I, I don't know how, I mean, he's besides the fact the answer is he's good. Uh, the fact that Everyone knows Jordan Dingle at this point, but he's still doing all of the things that he was doing the first two weekends of league play. And I don't think this made the air when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago about how even when I thought Penn was the overall better team than Princeton, 
Princeton had some teams that were just built better to beat Penn. They might not do as well against the other six schools, but they were built better to be Penn. Mm-hmm. I think Penn has this team where they have enough inside and outside and depth that they're they're built fairly well to go up against any Ivy school and and their non-conference slate put them in a position where the games were perhaps going to get a bit easier come January. Yeah, John, Steve Donahue and his staff are doing an outstanding job. I'm like absolutely befuddled, okay? Noah Kirkwood is a first-team All-Ivy player. I mean, the kid is awesome, and we're going to touch on that in a second. He is awesome, but he's not able to make the difference by himself winning and losing. Tim and Ng Cho at Brown, awesome, outstanding player. He's not able to make the difference by himself winning and losing. So as good as Jordan Dingle is, and he's great, and I'll say it, he's great, and he's so fun to watch. I'm so excited we have him on the show this week. One guy can't do it, and that's I'm just absolutely so impressed. I think you can hear in my voice, so impressed with the job that Steve Donahue has done with the Quakers this year. Because, yes, they have an outstanding basketball player in Jordan Dingle, but they have a good team. It looks like Dingle is always getting support from at least two Quakers. And it's not always the same two Quakers. He's averaging almost twice as many points as any other two of his teammates combined. But he's not going out there and, you know, chucking up 40 shots or whatever. And to win those games, I still can't figure out how they lost to Columbia, but that's another story for another episode. He, he's getting the support. And, and whether it comes from Martz or Jelani Williams or Moskovitz or whomever, it seems like in conference play, they've always had at least two other guys aiding the cause. All hands have been on deck for the Quakers. It's been fun to watch. And I'll say it again, even though I'm not picking them necessarily week in and week out, they've, to me, been the story of the season so far. A team that has not had quite the success that Penn has had in the league is the Dartmouth Big Green. Fortunately, guys, they rank last in the league in scoring per game, 68 points per contest. They also rank last in field goal percentage, assists, rebounding, and free throw attempts. Analytics converts like myself will tell you that the latter four stats comprise the four factors to winning games that the godfather of analytics, Dean Oliver, author of Basketball on Paper, has been preaching about for years now. The Big Green don't excel in those areas that lead to winning games. And so despite their well-coached and executed Princeton offense, it's actually fun to watch. Barry's played well. Rye has played well at times. Kristoyak is fun to watch, whether he's starting or off the bench but the big green just can't get over the hump losers of 13 of their last 15 games. Brown responds to their disappointing loss on Friday and they beat the big green. It's just been a long season for coach McLaughlin and those days from back beating Georgetown seemed like a long time ago and the Brown bears somehow, some way, maybe they're keeping their Ivy madness dreams alive. That left Yale versus Harvard, the big game. And uh, they had a great turnout as William McCormick from the Yale Daily News shared with us last week. 
mentioned that students were going to be allowed back into Payne Whitney Gym for the first time in the weeks. And it really, guys, it added a nice touch to the rivalry game. And Yale established themselves in the first half and led the game. Lots of energy back and forth in the second half. Here's what stuck out to me as much was that the Bulldogs continued to get in the lane against Harvard. And Harvard had to step up, you know, was finding guys along the baseline, whether it's Noling or EJ. Uh, it just seemed like they o- always would have guys in that dunker spot along the uh, short corner. And uh, multiple times, Harvard was giving up baskets at the rim. But here's what I would say in terms of Harvard's approach. It does seem like a one-man wrecking crew. Noah Kirkwood, he was just single-handedly outstanding for Harvard, kept them in the game. Threes, drives, getting fouled. He had a couple of Nowitzki fadeaways, one that went in, one that just rode off the rim for literally, guys, 10 minutes straight in the second half. I was keeping track. He shot or assisted on every single score that Harvard had to cut the deficit to uh, one point with about five minutes to go. That being said, the crowd was awesome. I really think the Bulldogs fed off of the students coming out. They never really wilted. They never got away from their game plan. A lot of teams kind of forget why they got the lead. Nope, not these guys. They continue to drive the basketball, find guys along the baseline, even in those waning minutes, attack the glass. I thought Swain had actually finished the game off with a pair of step-back jumpers, as a first-team Ivy player should do. But Harvard wasn't done yet. They actually, uh, they full-court pressed, they closed it to two points, and they forced, and this was really smart. Harvard came out of a timeout. Uh, There's a little bit more time than the shot clock, so Yale was going to have to shoot. So Harvard played full-court defense. They trapped the ball. Swain had it. He dribbled out of the press, but they forced him to dribble along the sidelines. He stepped out of bounds. So Harvard and Tommy Amick are really well-schooled and drilled. They did not foul. They forced the turnover, side out of bounds, Harvard's ball to tie this game or, or win it. Who knows? My wife was calling, get the ball to Kirkwood and drive it. That's what she was saying as we were watching the game together. And uh, she was half right. Amaker wisely got the ball to his dark horse candidate, dare I say, for player of the year, Noah Kirkwood. And guys, Kirkwood had a straight line path to the basket with no weak side defense in sight. When my wife said, get the ball to him and drive, I said to her, he's going to shoot a three. He's a confident shooter. He does it a lot in transition. It's probably his favorite shot. And I just something told me that he was going to shoot a three. Well, he did settle for a step back three that actually wasn't close. He missed badly. Yale gets the rebound, gets fouled, adds two free throws. Harvard throws a desperation shot up, but the streak has been broken and Yale finally beats Harvard. And after this week, as the death settles, despite Princeton dropping a game at Cornell, I still believe Yale and Princeton look like the class of the league. Our next guest has competed in the Ivy League for less than two full seasons, but he's made a name for himself almost from day one in his first collegiate basketball game back in November of 2019. He scored 24 points versus the Alabama Tide in an 81-80 victory for the Penn Quakers. To ensure that folks didn't consider that initial outing as beginner's luck, 
our guest notched 18 points or more in six of his next nine games as a freshman. The Ivy League Rookie of the Year Award for the 2019-20 season was a no-brainer. He has spearheaded the Quaker surge to the top four in the league while leading the league in scoring and becoming the first Penn player ever to record back-to-back 31-point games in league play. One of the most prolific scores in the storied history of Penn men's basketball. We welcome none other than Jordan Dingle. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's super exciting to have you. You are a heck of a player and a terrific student athlete. We're excited that you are here representing Penn Quaker basketball. As always, I have my co-host, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler. He's going to get us started. Jordan, let's talk about your journey to the Quakers. Can you tell us what teams you played for growing up and who are the players and teams you ran up against? Uh, sure thing. So I played for my father's AAU program called New York Lightning growing up. Later on, I think in 2012, the program became a Nike sponsored team. So they competed on the EYBL circuit. And I got to play against a bunch of guys that are in the NBA now, you know, like Cole Anthony, uh, Marvin Bagley, Cam Reddish, uh, Tyler Hero, just to name a few. And that was a really great experience because I was a young kid who got to travel, you know, all over the country playing the sport that I love. Tell me, Jordan, just about playing for your dad. You know, there's always that coach's son thing and coach's daughter thing that goes on in sports and just competing for your dad, who obviously brings his own wealth and knowledge to the game. But what was that experience for you between you and your dad? And then the kind of special pressure and experience it was to kind of have to represent, you know, and that people are looking at you as, oh, you know, there goes coach's son. <laughs> yeah, so um, there was absolutely no preferential treatment towards me. Uh, when I first started playing, I was not one of the better players on the team, and it was reflected in my playing time. There, <laughs> I had several, several DNPs <laughs> early <laughs> on, and my dad was just teaching me that, you know, there's not going to be any handouts. Like, if you want something, you have to earn it. Got it. Um, got it. As I got a little older, yeah, as, as I got a little older, you know, he kept me in the gym pretty frequently. And I started to improve on my game and my skills and all of that. But um, as far as, you know, the pressure of being the coach's son, I never really felt any of that, mostly just because whenever I'm playing, I'm worried about myself and what I need to do. And he's never tried to tell me that I need to be anything with basketball. You know, he always just said, as long as you're doing this, I expect you to work your hardest at it. And that's what I did. You know, there was no expectations that I needed to meet other than just putting my best foot forward every time out. At what point did you say, Dad, I want to be good at this? I mean, was there that conversation? Because it sounds like he was loving and supporting and kind of letting you figure it out and find your way. And I'm guessing at some point you said, Dad, I, I want more. And can you help lead the way? I don't remember the conversation exactly, but upon reflection, he's told me about it and how it went. So it came around 11 years old for me when I was mm. in sixth grade. Wow. He started uh, working out with me after school, and we continued that all the way throughout high school. His thing was early on, he just wanted me to be a kid and enjoy my childhood, you know, when I was young. And granted, I was still a kid at 11 years old, but at that point, I had made the decision to start putting a lot of time towards working on my game. And he really didn't want me to get burnt out. So he always just said that, you know, I would come to the decision on my own eventually when the time was right. And I did. 
Yeah, you know, actually, you're making me think of another question that I had just now is that considering this experience that you've had with your dad and your uncle who also played Division One basketball. So for our listeners, Jordan's dad played at UMass, and I'm going to touch upon that in a little bit, and your uncle at Temple, correct, Jordan? Yes. And between the two of them, you know, since we're already touching upon it, what are some of those other things that you look back on that dad or uncle shared with you that now you're like, aha, as, as much as I hate to admit it, they were right about that. I mean, some, some lessons and thoughts along the way that I'm sure just because they know so much are probably ringing true these days, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So for my uncle, he always just told me things from a different perspective, because, you know, there's a really large age gap between him and my father. Um, my uncle's only a few years older than me. So he would, you know, tell me things like, listen, go on all of your visits, all of your official visits, if you can. Don't play with any regrets, you know, worrying about what anybody else's expectations are from you. Uh, tried to make sure that I made all of my decisions on my own. So that way I wouldn't hold anything against anybody if things didn't work out at the end of the day. And he helped keep my head calm with a lot of situations, just giving me advice on how to deal with different adversity that he had seen throughout his career. Mm -hmm. Whereas my dad, you know, he really took more of a, a hands-off approach. You know, he would chime in every so often, but he just kind of let me navigate the path on my own. Obviously, there was structure to it, but uh, he, he always harped on being more than just the scorer in basketball. You know, he, he always told me like, yeah, maybe... You know, you could do this well, but you need to bring other things to the table. And I had to start working on, you know, being more of a playmaker because of my size, obviously, which helped progress my career much further than it would have if I hadn't taken that advice. Right. Great words. Great advice there. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your path. On this show, we've had a number of student athletes. It's been awesome to have these conversations. Uh, when we talk about backgrounds, the NEPSAC, uh, the New England Prep School Athletic Conference, that has come up a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. D.C., Maryland, Virginia has been represented. St. Louis and even a growing scene uh, of Canadian basketball, uh, particularly out of Toronto. So now you competed uh, at an elite prep school for a couple of years. You were first at Lawrence Woodmere Academy in New York, and then you move on to Blair Academy. Where would you say the New Jersey prep hoop scene fits in terms of this, these different high-level prep settings and what kind of competition, intensity, and development did it bring to your game? I think that it's all the way up there. I mean, during my time at Blair, which is nothing unique in the school's history, we were one of the best prep schools in the country. Um, it's been that way for a while. You know, we compete against St. Benedict's every year in the state championship, who's also one of the best prep schools in the country. But uh, during my time there, we played some more notable names like Montverde Academy and Westtown, just to name a couple. Mm -hmm. And my time there was really where I needed to do a lot of maturing. I was, you know, sent away from home at 17 years old. Uh, it wasn't that far, but I was on my own for the most part. And my coach, he, uh, Coach Mantegna, he was another person who really tried to get me to focus on being more of a playmaker. I kind of went in there with more of a scorer's mentality. And uh, he would not let me get away with it. We used to butt heads a little bit, but um, it, it was it was something that I really needed. And my time there helped my game mature a lot. And that was where I finally got my first offers, you know, uh, after my first year over there at Blair. 
because of the high level that I was used to playing against all year, I went into the EYBL season very well prepared for everything that I was about to face. Really thankful for my time there. Sure, sure. For our listeners, again, Joe Montegna, head coach of Blair Academy Boys Basketball, one could argue a Hall of Fame candidate. He's been outstanding at Blair Academy and has developed and produced so many good players. You mentioned you guys butted heads. I, I wanted to know a little bit more about that relationship. How did he how did he motivate you? Maybe, you know, it was different from what you had been exposed to. And so you struggled, but you certainly guys found a way. I'm mean, imagining. And at the end of the day, you know, what exactly did you learn from him that had him trusting you to lead his storied program? Uh, you know, I, in all honesty, that's something that you might have to ask him. From when I got there, he and uh, Coach DeJesus, the assistant coach there, they always used to say, listen, you you have so much more potential than you even realize. You know, they kind of saw what I could be and were guiding me on the steps in order to get there. And I guess he had so much faith in what he could see that the, the trust was just natural. But mm. early on during my time there, it was the preseason leading up to my first year. And he said, I've had 50 other Jordan Dingles in this gym before you. And that kind of upset me. And, you know, I, it motivated me to work a lot harder and to prove him wrong, but not, and there was no animosity towards it. It was just like, you know, an extra motivating factor. And after that junior year, he was the coach of the team USA select team. And they went over to Germany to play in the Albert Schweitzer games. And I went along with him. And over there, we had, you know, a deep heart-to-heart conversation about why my minutes weren't exactly what I expected them to be during that tournament and how that impacted uh, myself and then the team, of course. And over there was, you know, a big breakthrough for us in our relationship. And I want to say maybe at that point is where he really started to trust me a lot more. That's outstanding, man. I, I'm just thinking of the wealth of basketball experience that you've already been exposed to. Again, to help our listeners know, the Albert Schweitzer tournament is uh, one of the best youth tournaments literally in the country where they pull youth basketball teams from different parts of the world and bring them together to play. And then you have the Team USA connection. And then, as we've already talked about with your family background, a whole lot there. Uh, when you mentioned what Coach Mantegna said to you, uh, Jordan, just know you're in good company. I remember my dad telling me, and he was uh, fortunate enough to play at uh, Indiana University and was one of the first Black Americans to play overseas professionally. He told me, Sydney, good guards come a dime a dozen. So don't think that you're, you know, extraordinary. And so you're always going to have to carve out something to help your team and a way that you approach it and to help your teammates to prove your worth. It's not just necessarily your game. And I'm wondering if that's what coach was getting at in terms of some of those intangibles, if that, is that something that you've tried to lock into in addition to your scoring? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And like, he was really big on just how I acted off of the court, right? Like, you know, me coming from New York, I had a a bit of a more aggressive nature just naturally that some people would misinterpret. You know, it wasn't anything that was meant to scare people off, but there was like a a bit of a block between me and my teammates that prevented us from meshing as well as we could have. So he was always really big on just telling me like, yo, just 
be happy, smile a little more. You know what I mean? Just things like that, trying to get me to carry myself differently on and off of the court, which helped my communication a whole lot. And that made a really big difference. I helped, I had created a really great relationship with a lot of my teammates. Some of them, I would say, are lifelong friends. I'm still in contact with just about all of them today. And I think that that right there, like that uniqueness, that bond that we had with that group helped us create uh, what was arguably the best season in Blair's history. You know, it was the first year that the school had won the prep championship and the Maple championship in the same year. Yeah, that, that's saying a lot. Coach, uh, coach obviously thinks highly of you. I want to pivot again. I'm going to root this in a, a story of mine, but it's going to always come back to you as being one of our, our, our guests in the mid to late nineties, Jordan, I was a student athlete at Princeton. I'm sorry to tell you that. Um, <laughs> and during my sophomore season, my teammates and I had a nationally televised game versus John Calipari and the UMass Minutemen. And we mm. faced off against your father, Dana Dingle. And after a 21-point blowout, I had a few moments of realizing, oh, boy, I got to get a whole lot better. <laughs> um, you know, and then your dad's teams actually went on, I believe it was the following year where they went to the Final Four. What, what kind of experiences has he shared with you in terms of his college basketball experience, specifically on the court, you know, and, and anything that sticks out to you that, that he shared, or even, as we mentioned, your uncle playing at, at Temple, any basketball story or experience that is memorable to you? There really wasn't too, too much. Uh, he spoke to me about some of the things that he went through with uh, playing time. You know, he came in his first year, he played a lot. Then I, uh, I guess the year after they had a pretty good recruiting class, and he started to see his minutes waver, and he had to figure out a way to get himself onto the floor, which, you know, he carved his path by, you know, making the dirty plays, getting down on the floor, playing defense, you know, rebounding, things like that. He'll make little jokes about uh, how, you know, we're soft nowadays and how Cal would, you know, mother F them and all that good stuff. Um, and how, you know, they, they used to work so much harder than we did, but there wasn't anything uh, too specific. And then my uncle he tore his meniscus and uh, it was a struggle for him to come back from that. So he kind of just told me about what he did to keep his head right. You know, just in case I ever went through uh, something injury, thankfully I haven't. And, you know, hopefully I, I, I won't God willing. Yeah. But, we hope so too. Uh, knowing that you're at Penn and you're, you've had a brilliant start to your career, but obviously academically it's an outstanding school, but I just wonder, you know, UMass Temple, I mean, those are two schools that play a whole lot of ball and obviously offer uh, a great education. What made Penn the choice for you? And was UMass or Temple, was, were either one of those schools kind of in the mix uh, in terms of gaining your attention? Nope, not even remotely so. I, um, I really didn't have too many options coming out of uh, high school. Wow. I had been in contact with six out of the eight Ivy Leagues. Uh, so I, I wasn't in contact with Harvard or Yale. I had a few Patriot League schools. And then late in my recruiting process, like right before I committed, St. Bonaventure started to talk to me. So I really didn't have too many uh, options. But before that, for my first few years of high school, I did a summer internship with my father's former boss, uh, he had he ran a clearing court on Wall Street. So I had that Wall Street exposure early on. And my father's former boss, named Mark Fisher, he's a 
Penn Wharton alum. So I always wanted to make sure that I was able to provide for myself and my family, regardless of how the chips fell. And I knew that going to a school as illustrious as the Wharton School of Business, there's not too many places in the world where I'd step into a job interview and they wouldn't know that degree or they wouldn't know somebody who went there, you know, because of the uh, great alumni network here. So just wanting to be more than just a basketball player, like my mom always said. Amen. And many others as that saying or that belief is, is kind of run true to a lot of people from coast to coast across the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Exploring a little bit more about Penn basketball. Please forgive me if I'm not saying this correctly. Wanau. Is that right? W-H-A-N-A-U. Yep. Um, uh, so that I, I said it wrong the first couple of times. So it took me about two weeks to learn what it is. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm not the only Is it Wanau or is it something else? So it's pronounced Fow Now. Fow Now, um, okay. Yep, they got it from the New Zealand uh, men's national team. It was something that they did before the chant, and it means uh, family. So we say mm-hmm. it at the end of every practice, at the end of every huddle. And honestly, I can't even tell you how they got it, you know, like where exactly where they came into contact with that phrase. I just know it's something that we say. Fanau is something that's tagged all over Penn Quakers, uh, their social media, and obviously in their in terms of telling their story and, and the meaningful values that Steve Donahue has instilled in the program. But another maybe possibly outside the box question for you, Jordan, why do you play basketball? What does this game mean to you? This game means a lot to me. At first, it started off as something fun to do with my friends, but it's become so much more than that. Uh, basketball has brought me all over this country and then, you know, even across the world to Germany. Basketball is a way for my family to come together outside of major holidays. You know, people who I might not see other than once or twice a year. You know, I get to see my loved ones at my games. It's a way for me to express myself on the court. It's a release from all of the stresses of daily life. But it's also just a beautiful art form, you know, something that I've fallen in love with, something that I want to continue to get better at each and every day. You know, it, it gives me purpose. It's taught me a lot of lessons that I take elsewhere in life. And I'm grateful for every single day that I get to wake up and play this game. Connected to that. Thank you for sharing. It, it's uh, beautiful, to be honest. It's, what have you learned about yourself? You know, is, is I want to learn more about you. And, and here's what I'm going with. Um, and you've heard this before. You, you know that you're a very good player. You bring a lot of joy to people who love Ivy League basketball. And I'm, I'm a Princeton guy through and through. I really enjoy watching you play. What I've noticed is that you're so unflappable. You're so cool in the moment. You're a bucket getter. You're a, a good teammate. You're unselfish. And also the game never seems to be too big for you. And so I see this player who's doing all these great things and as cool as they come. So I want to know a little bit more about you. How are you able to be that way? Number one. And then number two, just in terms of going piggybacking that first question is, what have you learned about Jordan Dingle through the game of basketball? So take either one of those. Well, just to quickly answer the the former question, I'm able to do what I do on the court because of the preparation that I put into. I'm very confident in the hard work that I've put in that has caused me to become who I am today. Mm. Uh, Like when I say, you know, me and my dad were in the gym every day from, 
you know, 11 years old, so I graduated high school. Like, I meant every day, barring, you know, some type of injury or traveling. Like, uh, unless there was some anomaly, we were in the gym all of the time. I put in a lot of work, and I think that just falling back on that groundwork, that base that I have, helps keep me confident in all situations. And the first thing that comes to mind with what basketball has taught me about myself is that um, I'm, I'm a really sore loser. Like I, okay. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, I also learned that I'm probably somebody that that's been uh, really blessed, you know, like just all the people that I've met through basketball, like it's shown me that Jordan Dingle really has a great life. You know, I have an amazing family. My parents did a great job providing for me. And then everybody else, obviously in the extended family, you know, you meet so many people from so many different backgrounds you know, it, I, after a while, I take a step back and say, wow, you know, I, I really did have it uh, great coming up. Like my parents did an amazing job with me and my sister. So I'm really grateful for that. Boy, if I could score the ball like Jordan Dingle, what an outstanding student athlete to have on our show. And Jordan, man, does he know his way around the rim can score it from long distance, mid-range, and all that good stuff, but a wonderful young man as well. And what a family with an uncle who's played college basketball, a dad who's played college basketball, and then even look at his prep school experience under Coach Joe Montegna, arguably a Hall of Famer. We couldn't have any of these stories without talking to the student athletes, the coaches, administrators directly themselves. So if there's somebody you want to hear from, please don't hesitate to write into us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com and offer up your suggestions on our next guest. Don't limit it to guests, though. Suggestions on topics, trends, teams, whatever to cover for Lawrence and myself on the Ivy League Hoops Hour, and we will certainly work it into the show. Now, let's get back to the stars standout for the Penn Quakers, Jordan Dingle. What a blessing to know and be able to see that. I have one more question that I certainly want to uh, leave some space for my co-host, Lawrence. You know, it's been very central lately to understand that basketball, sports, society, race, I mean, those are all kind of blended. And we talk about race, diversity, and inclusion and the need for, you know, urgent change in society. And I'm wondering, your team in particular, Jelani Williams, was outstanding in his time with us on the on the show earlier in the season. But mm-hmm. your team and Penn Athletics, I get the sense in general, has really taken a leadership role. I'm wondering if that has influenced uh, your experience as at Penn as a student or as an athlete. If you can share some of that with our audience. Oh, absolutely. Well, for my experience as a student, it hasn't really changed too much. People here, you're surrounded by a lot of great people when you're here at Penn. I, I really can't say that that experience has changed a lot, but from the support that my coaches and my teammates who aren't Black have shown for those of us who are throughout this entire process has been amazing. And it's helped me to be more comfortable around my team. You know, it's something that I haven't experienced before, Obviously, with us sitting for the national anthem, you know, us going into hostile territories where we have fans shouting obscene things at us. And 
for them to be there with us every step of the way, you know, it's, it's really meant a lot. So my time here as an athlete has been made a lot better because of that right there. Yeah. Yeah. That was a pretty disappointing situation and environment down in Florida state. Is that right? Yes. Very. And, and I read, and, and I, I feel somewhat neglectful that I, I didn't give Jelani a chance to address some of that, but that was really ugly. And if, if you can, take a moment. I don't want to uh, be too heavy with it, but just, uh, or, or re-traumatize, but I just wonder if you could share some of that so that people understand that this is still an issue. And so w- what was it to be attacked and treated that way by some people? I can't say the entire Florida State community, but that was a thing. And that certainly had to affect you all. I wonder if you can share some of those emotions. For one thing, it was really eye-opening. The way that the world is today and what we're taught growing up in school, you know, they try to hide the ugly sides of people. They try to hide the ugly sides of history. And going down there in Florida State, you know, we saw a lot of that hatred and ignorance that some people still had, you know, just the the lack of compassion for another human being. It was really hurtful to see. And then the events that occurred behind our bench where there was a fan shouting with some of our families, you know, Florida State fans shot with some of our families that resulted in, you know, one of my my teammates, little sisters crying. That's just absolutely devastating, you know, for her to be so young and have to go through that and see somebody yelling at, you know, her older brother and, and his teammates. I honestly, I'm thankful that I had that experience, but it's definitely not something that I want to go through again. And I really hope that it's not something that anybody else has to go through. Yeah, then. During the game, you know, my teammate Jelani, who you just mentioned, he, he was called, you know, the N-word with the hard R at the end uh, in the middle of the game during the dead ball by a, a fan who was on, on the sidelines. And just to see somebody that enraged by the simple action of us peacefully protesting shows a lot about where this country really is. It's It, it wasn't everybody down in Florida State, but there are more people like that. It's not something that I was used to, obviously, growing up in the Northeast. We, we had conversations about it. We knew that it wasn't going to be easy. But for it to you know, actually happen, it was, it was an entirely different story. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Jordan, that Jelani faced that, that the young lady that you mentioned faced that, that you guys did. But I will tell you, as, a, as an old head, I, I feel inspired and proud of how you all have put words to that, that mm-hmm. you've tried to enlighten folks that you stayed strong and courageous, but humble as well. And so I I just, I really do, I'm being real with you, man. I'm just, I applaud you for carrying the torch for all of us in the regard to hold on to something that's good in this world and and not give in to uh, something that's really ugly and still does exist. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, thankful. I want to extend that gratitude to like my teammates and my coaches because that experience showed us that, you know what, we were absolutely 100% correct in doing what we are currently doing, that we need to continue to raise awareness around the social justice issues in this country. Thank you for that. Indeed. Indeed. Maybe one more question on my end, but Lawrence, I just wanted to leave any room, anything you I left out? Yeah, while you're here, we have a pen guy in our midst. I got to get a peek over the wall. Tell us something we don't know. Just being uh, a Princeton guy asking a Penn guy. Tell us something that uh, we should know. 
one thing that you should know is that we have a really great group of players here at Penn and we weren't able to reflect it in our early season play because of the gap in time that we had, you know, with the year off, which isn't unique to Penn. But one thing that I think might be unique to us is that even more of our older players had never seen a minute of college basketball before this season, you know, like Jelani, who you had on here before, and then Jonah Charles, Max Lorca-Lloyd, he did play a little bit uh, his freshman year. But, you know, those were guys who had very little to no college basketball experience before that. And one thing that we lacked was the maturity to finish games out. You know, we'd have a lead late and we wouldn't be able to hang on to it. But because of our tough early schedule, uh, we've been battle tested. We've seen it through and we're starting to get to the level that we know that we can be as a team. I mean, you know, guys are playing more confident. It seemed like for the month of January, we had a, a different leading scorer every single day. You know, that that wasn't me. And guys are really starting to come into their roles and be more aggressive. And it's been beautiful to see. Um, so we're, we're really just growing and maturing. And that lack of experience is starting to hold us back a little bit less each game that we play. Good stuff, Jordan. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome because that explains a lot. You guys are playing outstanding basketball. We expect no less. Jordan, you've been so generous with your time here and insightful thoughts, emotional ones. And I dare I say, I, I definitely know that on behalf of Lawrence and myself, this has been one of the more outstanding interviews that we've had. And we learn about one of the best basketball players, but I'm sure one of the best students and men off the court in Jordan Dingle. I appreciate you joining us. And we always ask our guests if there is something in the league, um, if there's something on their campus it can be academic, it can be with men's basketball, but if there's anything that you think would bring something great and better to the Ivy League, to Penn Quaker basketball, to the campuses, anything that you would love to see to come to fruition, please, if you could enlighten us and share. One thing that I would love to see happen, you know, at any point in time, whether it's during my career or not, would be for the Ivy League to start giving out athletic scholarships. You see, as a student here, I'm sure you can relate day in, day out, the grind that all of us who are student athletes put into our craft. You know, we work just as hard as schools and other uh, leagues that do give out athletic scholarships. It would be really nice to see those efforts rewarded with um, an athletic scholarship for those of us who do. And obviously the grind in the classroom is nothing to be laughed at. Uh, I have a teammate, Michael Moskowitz, he's taking six classes you know, I see him literally on his laptop in the locker room right before games. Like I'm dressed, getting taped, warming up. He's on his laptop working on an assignment, you know, like hmm. it, 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 we, we put in a lot of effort. We put in a lot of work and it would be really great to see that moving forward. Jordan, could you see that being extended or let, let me rephrase that. Do you feel like that would be extended to men's and women's basketball in the ancient eight? Would you see that in the other sports as well? How far would you want to see that extended? I would want to see it extend to the level that it has everywhere else. Sports is serious in the Ivy League. Like people make jokes about it all the time. Like, oh, you're going and playing against a bunch of accountants and all that. But no, that, that's not the case. There's a lot of serious, dedicated athletes who put a lot of their time in their lives towards this. So for whatever all varsity sports are, anywhere else in the country, I would like to see full athletic scholarships extended to those athletes, you know, if, if it's possible. I don't know how feasible that is. Unfortunately, I'm not smart enough to know, like, all of the X's and O's that go into that. But 
that is something that I would like to see. I, I will say this. The one thing I disagree, you are definitely smart enough. So don't don't sell yourself short. <laughs> and I'd also say this. You might be playing against some accountants, but they just happen to be the ones who can play a little basketball. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you and I know that. I had my hands full playing in this league, and you do as well. But you have led this program to a really good spot in ancient eight play. Ivy Madness is right around the corner, and you guys are looking good. Please give my best to Jelani. He's outstanding to have on, and you have matched him. And then some, Jordan. We really appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with us on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Best of luck with the rest of the season, and uh, thanks again. Oh, thank you guys so much. It was an honor for me to be here. Lawrence, it's now time to reach into our mailbag and address emails, questions, suggestions from our dedicated listeners. We appreciate all of you for joining the discussion each and every week, listening to our student athletes, the coaches, talking about the teams, the trends, the performances, the challenges of Ivy League basketball and athletics. It's been a wonderful conversation and we couldn't do this without you. So please continue to join us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. That's how you can get in touch with us. You know, we have a YouTube channel. Obviously, we're coming to you on podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or however you consume your content. But please reach out to us and continue to listen, subscribe, follow, all of the above. This week, we have an email from David Korzenowski. And David writes to us, this season, I'm working as a radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Brown Bears during their home games. The games are carried on AM 790 WPRV in Providence and accessible online too. I've loved covering this talented Brown team and also thoroughly enjoyed your podcast. I listen every week and appreciate the insight around the league as well as the guests you have on. Thanks a ton, David. I appreciate that. David goes on to say, I have a question for you guys as well. In the era of the transfer portal, is the Ivy League at a higher risk of losing talent compared to other leagues? Here's my thinking. The Ivy League has higher academic standards than any other conference, and their schools don't offer athletic scholarships. So the likelihood of the league gaining star transfers is low. Now, too, the best players at the mid-major level are often pursued by high major schools. You got that right, David. I see talented freshmen around the Ivy League, and my first thought isn't, I can't wait to watch them when they're a junior or senior. It's, I hope they're still here as a junior and senior. Do you guys agree, or am I overreacting? David, you're spot on, my brother. Um, There is no doubt. And I would say, you know, it's interesting because there's a conversation going on, brewing, I should say, about whether they will start, they being Ivy League institutions, whether they'll offer athletic scholarships, but um, let's not hold our breath on that. But then again, um, I don't think that that's an extra vulnerability, say, uh, in terms of coaching Ivy League players or having them leave just because of the athletic scholarship piece. You kind of sign up for that and you know what's coming. You understand in the process that that is not part of why I'm going to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and so on. And so that comes with the territory. That being said, if we look at things uh, over these recent years, and it was even going on when I was coaching 07 to 11, but let's look at Jerome DeRozier from Princeton. He's at Hawaii right now. Gabe Stefanini playing excellent for the San Francisco Dons. Ryan Schweiger 
Loyola Chicago, joined by uh, Chris Knight, former Dartmouth player, also at Loyola Chicago. Those guys are 18-4, and four, one of the best mid-major teams in the country. Paul Atkinson at Notre Dame right now, and even on the women's side, Katie Benzer, a lights-out shooter for Harvard in years past. Now she's playing for the Maryland Terpins. Uh, let's look at past years, okay? Ryan Bentley, Steve Donahue talked about at length that he wanted to stay at Penn but didn't have the opportunity to. Jordan Bruner at Alabama. Listen to what Coach Nate Oates, the head coach of the Crimson Tide, said when they were able to get Jordan Bruner through the transfer portal. He shoots it well. He handles it well. He passes it well. His skill level is high. He's got a presence about him. I think he's really helped our seniors that were already here. Yeah, no kidding, Coach. Respectfully, Bruner honed all of those skills at Yale under James Jones. I broadcasted Ivy League games for ESPN two seasons ago, and it was clear then to me that Atkinson and Bruner were the best one-two punch in the league and could go toe-to-toe with any front court in America. That season earlier in the year before Ivy League play, they had a nine-point win at Clemson and single-possession losses versus none other than North Carolina and Penn State, all of those being road games. You've got Bruce Aiken at Seton Hall. You've got Seth Towns who went to Ohio State, both of those two coming out of the Harvard program. Jack Forrest, now at St. Joe's, scored 13 points versus Davidson the other night. Obviously, he left Columbia. And Mike Smith, geez, starred for Columbia, lit the league on fire, transferred to Michigan and started uh, one of the top assist guys in the Big Ten and led Juwan Howard to a Final Four appearance. Let's call it what it is, David. The Ivy League will become the perfect minor league farm system for highly competitive mid-major and high-major programs. Again, maybe not so much because of the scholarship piece, but I think a few other reasons. One, we, Ivy League athletics, Ivy League basketball for sure, produce outstanding student athletes. No issues with grades, as you mentioned. Highly self-motivated student athletes, self-starters. What coach doesn't want to add that to their existing core of players? All right. Another component, gratefulness. The humble facilities and no frills approach to Ivy League athletics means our student athletes will transfer to places with attractive name and image likeness deals, monthly stipends, free laptops, ample amounts of gear, shoes, training supplements, daily meals provided every day. That's usually what daily means. Um, But they'll actually be grateful. Again, another quality head coaches are looking for to add to their culture and their environment. You know, um, gratefulness. I think a a desired quality, frankly, folks, uh, in a youth sports scene in America that is increasingly pushing the me, me, me approach to the team game. Well, Ivy Leaguers, they're coming from like, you know, a humble setting. And, you know, if I'm going to generalize, they're probably going to be grateful for all these bells and whistles that they get at the high major level. Make sure they handle their grades, perform the best they can. That's a good addition to your program. And lastly, I'd say proven performance. Why would a high major, a competitive mid-major coach roll the dice on a high school kid who he hopes can perform at the Division I level? When he can see clear examples of Ivy League players who have proven that they can perform at the Division I level. And now kids don't need to sit out a year either when they transfer. So a few examples of kids this season in the league. And I intentionally pick players who don't have eligibility left because I'm not looking to encourage this trend. I'm just speaking on it. But let's take a look. Brendan Barry, who we know went 
You know, he's at Dartmouth, went to Temple, and now he's back at Dartmouth. Well, this year, 19 points versus Georgetown, 20 points versus Stanford, 11 made threes by Brendan Berry in those two games. Tamaning Cho, 25 points and seven rebounds versus Maryland. Best player on the court in the first half of that game. Azar Swain, 17 points in a home win versus UMass. Dropped 34 points on Iona. Obviously an excellent mid-major program, coached by Rick Pitino, Hall of Famer. Jalen Llewellyn, 19 points versus Minnesota. Folks, that was with four fouls during that game. Plagued with foul trouble all along. Could easily drop 20, 25 on those guys. Ethan Wright for Princeton. He only had 14 points versus Minnesota. He grabbed 18 rebounds in that game. And oh, by the way, when they played Oregon State a little bit later in the season, Ethan Wright had 24 points and 10 rebounds. We're talking about proven performance, folks. So coaches nowadays are scouring low and mid-major basketball and actively recruiting off of other people's rosters. That's the reality. And that is to improve their own teams. And frankly, players, they want to keep their options open and test themselves at what they might view as a higher level. So if Fortune 500 companies know that we, the Ivy League, can develop some of the best minds and talents in the world, why wouldn't a high major basketball coach entertain the same approach to improving his team over the offseason? Nothing wrong with transferring, folks. It is what it is. So, David, excellent question. Please let me know what you think in terms of the response. You seem like you know a whole lot about the game and you've been covering Brown. We may have to have you on the show um, and we encourage that. We throw that out to all of you folks. We're looking for guests to join the conversation. Obviously, love to have our coaches and student athletes. But if you're close to one of the ancient eight programs and have a little bit of an inside look, join us. It just deepens the conversation. Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com is how you can reach us. And please always let us know where we stand. Are Lawrence and I way off this or are we hitting some points? We hope so. Keep joining the discussion week in and week out. And now it's time for our non-Ivy League nods. First up, we've got the Duke Blue Devils. In the past, we've given nods to teams that beat Duke. This time, we're going to give the nod to Duke, who went down to the Dean Dome and dropped the hammer on North Carolina with first place in the ACC at stake. So well done, Coach Mike Krzyzewski and the Duke Blue Devils. Well said, Lawrence, and I'll back you up on that one. And also, thank you for my non-Ivy lead nod of the week, as I was really touched by your words regarding Gerald Jerry Sherwin and his passing. The condolences that you offered his friends, his family, the Columbia basketball community, and the entire Ivy League basketball community. Lawrence, you made me think of something Coach Carrillo once said regarding the passing of his own dear friend and Princeton academic legend Marvin Bressler. And allow me to paraphrase, Coach said something along the lines of it's best to appreciate people while they're here and a little late to do so when they're gone. And so with that in mind, I wanted to acknowledge Dick Vitale, who is obviously still with us and fighting a battle against cancer that we pray and hope and truly believe he will recover from. Dick Vitale has made an unforgettable impact on the game and his joy for all things college basketball cannot be disputed. The most committed of Ivy League fans will have noted, as I did, that Dick Vitale takes time from his chemo treatments 
to tweet various mentions to his fans about the college game and recently praised Brian Earl for the job he's done with the Cornell program and the Big Reds' recent win over Princeton last Friday, which Coach Vitale knows is Coach Earl's alma mater. I'm sure that Brian Earl appreciated the kind words of the legendary Dickie V, and I'm sure that we all can appreciate the energy, the passion, and the enthusiasm that Dick Vitale has given to a game we care so deeply about. Get well, Coach Vitale. Hey, Princeton and Georgetown, I'll tell you what. I'm supposed to go home for the weekend. If Princeton could beat Georgetown, I am going to hitchhike to Providence, which isn't that far from here. I'm going to be their ball boy on their next game, and then I'm going to change into a Princeton cheerleading uniform. I'm going to lead all the cheers. Let's go, Tigers! Let's go, Tigers! And now it's time to spread some love around the Ivy League. Coach, what are you hearing out there? Well, this one I have to credit the Ivy League Athletics Communications Wing. The league office has highlighted a pair of ancient eight standouts who are helping their national team stay in the medal race in women's ice hockey. That would be Princeton's Kimberly Newell, who was first team All-Ivy back in 2016, and Brown's Maggie Wu the leading scorer for the Brown Bears back in 2016. They are both nowadays competing for Team China in the Beijing Winter Olympics. Newell and Wu helped secure a quarterfinal spot for Team China with a 2-1 win over Japan. Team China has one more match in the prelim rounds, Lawrence, and then they await their quarterfinal matchup this Thursday or Friday of this week. Our best goes out to Ivy League hockey stars, Kimberly Newell and Maggie Wu. It's time for predictions. Predictions, Pat. First, let's take a look at the standings. It looks like I'm in the lead at 20 and 10, and Coach keeping up at 15 and 15. For this weekend's games, Saturday, February 12th, I'm picking Penn over Harvard, Yale over Columbia, Cornell over Brown, and Princeton over Dartmouth. Coach, who have you got? Predictions, Pat. Well, I echo Princeton over Dartmouth. Enough said. Tigers too good at home. Yale over Columbia. Will Columbia win another game this season? I actually say yes, but not against Yale. Game of the weekend in my book, Lawrence. Harvard visiting the Palestra to take on Penn. Penn has been the team of the Ivy League season. You've heard me say that once, twice. I'm going to say it a third time. Just in terms of their youth, the unimpressive start of their season, three wins in their first 13 games. And yet now they sit comfortably in a top four position with less than half of league play left to go. How? Jordan Dingle, he helped take a stab at having us appreciate the chemistry of the team, the slowness that they had in terms of coming off from COVID and mixing together. I would also add, in a league that relies on a three-point shot so much, probably about as much as any conference in the country, Penn ranks third in field goal percentage defense from the three-point line at 33%. Not bad. They've also climbed to third place in the league in terms of offensive efficiency behind Princeton and Cornell. And the question needs to be posed, not just because he's this week's guest, but we've got to start looking at Jordan Dingle as possibly the player of the year in the Ivies. Now, if your answer is Noah Kirkwood is just as important to his team as Jordan Dingle is, I'd say yes. And now you got me on a ramble about this. 
although the overall strength of the Ivy League is not as good as it has been in years past, I would take first-team All-Ivy players Tosan Awoma, Temin Cho, Noah Kirkwood, Jordan Dingle, Azar Swain, and give me a six-man in either Ethan Wright or Jalen Llewellyn. I'd take those guys up against any other conference's first-team, all-league team, however you want to phrase it. And even more, I'd love to coach those guys in three-on-three FIBA basketball. Since it's my pod, I can go on to ramble. Anyway, <laughs> Penn beats Harvard. Brown at Cornell. How about that one? Backs against the wall, and Brown essentially needs to win out to secure a spot in Ivy Madness. Folks, this week, sadly... I'm bailing on the Brown Bears, and it pains me. Cornell has suffered only one loss at home all season, and they also average 82 points per game when you take out the two blowout wins that they've had at home against non-Division I opponents. In nine Ivy League games, Brown has only scored over 82 points in two of those games. I'm going with Cornell at home over Brown, to put an end to postseason dreams of Mike Martins, head coach at Brown, who I dare say may have his most talented team that he's amassed in 10 seasons at Brown. But I just don't think they're going to be able to get this one. Cornell beats Brown and ends the Bears' hopes of Ivy Madness. Now, those are just predictions, folks. You know me. I'm sitting at 15 and 15, and my partner here, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler, is looking at 20 and 10, so you probably want to be listening to him. But either way, don't put too much money on this. You want to embarrass me, make a fool out of me? You didn't gamble? Tell me you gambled the money. I'll give you the money to put the need on. Just join the conversation. Let us know who you think is going to win the league. Who's going to finish top four? Should we hold on to the scheduling that the Ivy League has adopted this season? All of these things and much more. Let us know where you stand on the topics. Email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. And we promise we will get your feedback suggestions into the show. Well, that went quick. Yet another episode, and we hope a good one, of the Ivy League Hoops Hour, as I've got my guy with me, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler, yours truly, and John Solomon, who's been an awesome contributor to the show. And we're talking all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. You know the drill, and you know the deal. You know the teams, the players, the coaches, and we're all having fun bouncing these topics back and forth, looking at the games, the results, and it's starting to heat up, folks, for Ivy League Madness. As it does, please continue to join us and spread the word about the show. Don't keep this fun to yourselves. Please let your friends, your family, randoms, remember, you're at the grocery store, you're filling up your gas, whatever it is, you're running errands, let them know about the pod and encourage them to join us. If they want to weigh in on topics, trends, what to talk about on the show, guests to have, please encourage them to write to us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com and pass it along to their friends in terms of having this conversation and joining us week in and week out. Don't forget, we have a YouTube channel, the Ivy League Hoops Hour, where you can hear us. And those are all the different ways that you can interact with us. And we really hope that you do. It's been a labor of love for Lawrence and myself, and we hope that you'll join us 
same time next week. Such an improved player. You mentioned hysteria. It's H squared here. Hoops hysteria. Sheffer! Yes! He looks at the three and knocks it down. Ron Sheffer! It's Rocky time! It's showtime! It's party time! Stars Connecticut! The capital of the basketball world! That's the second time tonight the Huskies have led in the three-point margin. Their largest lead, 615. Don't say that, they'll hear you in Bristol.